you have heard of the so-called prosperity gospel. This is a false gospel. It promises health and wealth and material prosperity in return for a commitment to live for Christ and to give to a particular ministry, usually the church or ministry associated with the one preaching the so-called prosperity gospel message. And it's a lie from the pit of hell, just in case I'm not clear. Now, Jesus said whoever would be his disciple must take up his cross and follow him. The Christian life is, is hard. There is no guarantee of material blessing for following Jesus. Uh, the, the fires burning in the Pacific Northwest right now are not discriminating against believers versus unbelievers. And I guarantee that those who genuinely know Jesus are still facing the destruction of their own property. Following Jesus does not bubble wrap you from the difficulties of the world. There are, however, passages that we find in the Bible that we cannot ignore, passages that teach that, that God does not turn a blind eye to faithfulness, and in particular to generosity. Think of Proverbs eleven twenty four: One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. The one who waters will himself be watered. That's in the Bible. And this isn't just an Old Testament idea. At the end of Philippians, Paul thanks the church in Philippi for her financial generosity, for their support of his ministry in other churches. The Philippians are wonderful gospel partners with Paul, but Paul is most excited about the blessing that is going to go to them for giving to him. Paul is less excited about the financial generosity that he's receiving and more excited about the spiritual blessing that they will be receiving for giving. He says in Philippians 4.17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. The generous can expect God to increase fruit in their lives. Those who do good can expect to receive good from the Lord. Though God can certainly bless us materially, I take this fruit to be primarily, albeit not exclusively, spiritual fruit. This morning as I preach on generosity, I want you, Mount Vernon, to be encouraged. I'm encouraged by you. I do not have a rebuke for you this morning. I would rebuke you if I thought that you needed to be rebuked. And I'm not saying that there's no one in the congregation who in fact needs to be rebuked. But not knowing who you are and recognizing the overall faithfulness of the church that I'm so privileged to serve, I want you to be encouraged as we sit here for however long you're going to sit here and listen to a sermon on the topic of generosity. By God's grace, you have been faithful. But none of us have arrived we are all works in progress, and we live in a materialistic culture that every day is taking out a bat and trying to beat us senseless with the lie that you're only as happy as your garage is filled with stuff. Our society is more interested in comfort that you can buy than in the cross that you must carry. Materialism is far more dangerous than COVID-19. The virus attacks the body, but materialism attacks the soul. It can even choke the spiritual fruit out of the life of a Christian. Now, eventually, if the, if, if the, if the grip on the life of the Christian never ends, it, 
leads one to wonder whether or not he's really a Christian. But I'm not going there right now. I'm saying that even in a genuine Christian's life, materialism can get such a, a hold on you that spiritual fruit begins to wane. And for that to not happen, you must grow in your generosity. Now, in my preaching, I typically, I typically work through a book of the Bible, but today I'm taking the topic of generosity and examining it through several books of the Bible. I'll refer to many passages. It will be hard for you to take notes. Let me encourage you to listen carefully and perhaps simply to jot down references that I mention that you may want to look up later instead of turning to every passage that I bring up. If you are able to do that, I'd be interested to talk to you after the service and you can tell me how you did it. I want to share four marks of a generous Christian. Four marks of a generous Christian. There is so much that I want to say this morning that I simply do not have time to share with you about generosity. There is more in the Bible than you could possibly imagine about this topic. I have to limit myself. And so I've selected what I think right now at this stage in our church's life are the four most important things you need to hear about generosity from the Bible. But if you walk away thinking these are the only things from the Bible that we have to learn about generosity, well, then you're walking away misguided. There's simply four things that I think are particularly important from the Scriptures for us to know about the generous Christian life. First, a generous Christian gives freely. A generous Christian gives freely. In other words, he or she is not under compulsion to give. He's not giving because he must give, but because he can give and because he wants to give. He's not giving in response to a specific demand, but in response to a specific gospel that radically transformed his or her life in such a way that now, by the grace of God, he loves to give. He gives freely. Now, before I say more about giving freely, I feel the need to make a clarification because sometimes I don't think we're always comprehending accurately what the Bible says about giving. There is a giving that is required. Now, I'm not saying that that required giving can't be baptized by the Holy Spirit in such a way that it too is given freely. But I don't want to lead anyone astray. There is a giving that we are called to give that is a requirement. And we see it throughout the Bible. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 3, God says that the priests were to receive their due, their due from the people. Israel had to provide for the physical needs of the priests. And the Old Testament, the law, is filled with passage after passage making the point that the people had to give. Now, there is a parallel in the New Testament it's stated most clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul discusses his due, his right to financial support from the congregation. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 3, Paul says, This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know 
that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. In other words, Paul calls his the financial support that the congregation ought to have given him, he calls that financial support his rightful, his rightful claim, his rightful claim. And it's true today, those who devote themselves to teaching the gospel have a right to live by the gospel. Now, Paul revisits this topic in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In order to preach the gospel free of charge to the Corinthians, which is what Paul did, Paul had to do a couple of things. Occasionally, he would work with his own hands, tent making. But he also received financial support from other churches. All right? Paul was supported by his own hands, but not entirely. He was supported by financial gifts he received from churches in other cities. Look at 2 Corinthians, or listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7. Paul says, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? Verse 8, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. I did not any one of you, he means. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in, in any way. Paul wants the Corinthians to know that his preaching to them free of charge was not really free of charge. It was simply free of charge to them. So in 1 Corinthians 9.14, Paul says a preacher has a right to live by the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 11.8, Paul says that he, he robbed the Macedonian churches to serve the Corinthians. Now, he didn't like get a gun and like he wasn't holding people in, you know, in Philippi hostage. It's not what he's saying. You understand. He was saying, you know, I took, they, they, they gave me money for you. I wasn't serving them with the money that they gave me. I was serving you. And in that sense, you weren't giving me anything. So in a sense, I was robbing them for you. You put those two ideas together, and it's clear that if you're a, a church member who profits from the ministry of the church but doesn't financially support the church, and you can, but you don't, you are forcing the church to rob others to serve you. And that is just not a spiritually safe place to be. Like, if that's, if that's you, that's just not a spiritually safe place to be. And so I'd, I'd encourage you to give. This kind of giving is, is, is required now, but I want you to see that the Bible also presents the kind of giving that is not required, but it is encouraged. And I don't want to make this, this, this next observation by way of saying, those of you required to give to the support of the ministry here, well, you should give begrudgingly. No, you should give freely. But there's, a, there's an overabundant kind of giving, a, a, a freeness in your giving that the Bible presents, and it's what I mean by giving freely. And Paul refers to this kind of giving in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, the passage that we just heard read. He's not referring in 2 Corinthians 9 to his own personal support. He's talking about a voluntary collection that he plans to take up for the suffering saints in Jerusalem between famine and between persecution. The saints in Jerusalem were struggling and the leaders in the church in Jerusalem exhorted Paul to remember the poor in that city. And Paul is committed to remembering them by encouraging churches that he planted to provide financial gifts to their new brothers and sisters in Christ in Jerusalem. And Paul did not demand 
this giving. His tone about this financial aid is entirely different to what I've given you already in 1 Corinthians 9 and in 2 Corinthians 11. Look at second, or listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5. He tells the church, I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised. So clearly they had already agreed to give. He wants them to be ready. He wants to make sure that there's time to disciple them in the giving of this gift so that it may be ready as a willing gift, as a willing gift, not as an exaction. In other words, he, he doesn't demand that they give. Verse 6, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves <clears throat> a cheerful giver. Again, Paul there doesn't demand that they give. He doesn't dictate how much they ought to give. Everyone should give as his heart leads him. Now, in Exodus 25, we find a parallel event. Moses gave instructions for the building of the sanctuary in the temple. And the Lord tells Moses to take up an offering for the construction and for the, for the decor of the sanctuary. But this collection was to be voluntary. God doesn't dictate how big the gift ought to be. He doesn't dictate uh, that they give the gift at all. God simply tells Moses in verse 2, from every man whose heart moves him. This is the Old Testament. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. They're to give willingly as their hearts move them. In the Old Testament, there were certainly gifts that God wasn't asking if their heart moved them or not. He was saying, you're an Israelite, give this. But there were other gifts that they were to give as their heart moved them, not as a payment, not as a duty, not as a requirement, not as a demand. There are times in Scripture when we must give. We have a responsibility to financially support those who serve us the Word. It ought to be a delight, even though it is a duty, but there is also a giving that is not required. It's a giving that comes from a heart moved to give. So yes, all giving is to be joyful and glad. No giving should be reluctant. But a generous giving goes above and beyond what is required. It's a giving that springs from the heart. I mentioned last week that you might have, a, uh, have to get a Christmas gift for your long-lost cousin from Omaha. You may give reluctantly, out of duty. That's not generosity. Generosity is being joyfully open-handed with what you have for the sake of those you love, even long-lost cousins. How can you have a heart like this? We're all tempted. We are all tempted to give reluctantly. If you're thoughtful in your giving. I mean, my, my danger is the giving in my household is so automated. The actual task of giving is executed by Dina. And so I don't give much thought to it. And so that's my danger. I have to be thoughtful about my giving so that my heart can be in it. So that I can give joyfully. But as I get more thoughtful about my giving, I'm aware of the opportunity cost of my giving. I'm aware of where that money could actually be going if it were not going to the ministry of the church. And then there's the temptation for the giving to be reluctant. Oh, if we just cut that in half, look at what we could do. And so forth and so on. Am I alone? Do we all not struggle at times with the temptation to give reluctantly? And yet we're confronted with Scripture that says we're to give joyfully, we're to give cheerfully, gladly. What do you do when your heart isn't there? Well, the answer to that question is a sermon in and of itself. I do want us to observe what Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verses 30 and 31. I do believe this is the fundamental answer to how to cultivate a heart that is willing to give. Jesus said, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength, and you shall love 
your neighbor as yourself. And I know that the more your heart loves God who made you, and if you're a Christian, God who saved you, and the more your heart loves your neighbor, whether it's the neighbors with whom you're sitting this morning, whether it's neighbors across the ocean in, in, in foreign lands waiting for the gospel, as you grow in your love for God, as you grow in your love for your neighbor, I know your giving will be more cheerful and more ready and more willing and more glad. A, gener a generous Christian gives freely because he loves deeply. All right, that's the first mark, the first mark of a, of a generous Christian. Second, a generous Christian gives to the needy. A generous Christian gives to the needy. When you join Mount Vernon, you know that you enter into a, a church covenant with the body here. It's a, a short list of promises that we make as a local church. Uh, they're kind of like wedding vows. Uh, one of the promises that we make when we join the church is to care for the poor. Our covenant says we agree, quote, to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expense of the church, and the relief of the poor. About 200 years ago in Savannah, Georgia, uh, there was a, a kind of a, well, this was before there was any state-sponsored welfare, right? These are the early years of, of America. Uh, Savannah, Georgia didn't have that, that kind of system operating yet, and uh, there, was, there was a problem. A, a local church noticed that citizens of Savannah were dying of starvation. One onlooker reported what happened. A man with all the marks of the deepest poverty and distress about him lately died alone in one of the public markets. So there's, I mean, there you have it. It's something that happens in city after city, but this is one example. A local church notices happening, and when the local church discovered this, it responded by asking the deacons of the church to take practical steps to relieve poverty of citizens in Savannah. And so the deacons did that. They got together a, a ministry team, and uh, they decided how much it would cost. They kept track of the money, and they did what they could to meet the physical needs of their neighbors in Savannah, non-Christian neighbors, uh, and they did this in the name of Christ. There's a biblical precedent for that kind of action to be taken by Christians and by churches. We see it in Leviticus chapter 19, which holds before us the principle that the, the, the people of God are not to consume everything that they produce. The people of God are not to consume everything they produce, everything that they earn. Leviticus chapter 19, we read, verse 9, when you reap the harvest of your land. So these are instructions that God is giving through Moses to the people, helping them navigate what it's going to look like when they're living in the promised land. He says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. The gleanings are what was left over after they had done a, done a, a round of, of, of harvesting the crop. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord, your God. I mean, in Hebrew, it's, it's, it's I am who I am. I am your God. Notice this generosity is grounded in the identity of God. Our God who is unchanging in his generosity calls us to be generous too. Now proverb after proverb speaks of this. Proverbs 14:21, whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Proverbs 19:17. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to, lends to the Lord. <laughs> Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Friends, God doesn't need a loan. 
You know, he doesn't need your 795 to help somebody out. But you get the idea. God, God identifies with the lowly, right? Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. Proverbs 21, 13, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Proverbs 28, 27, whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. This is proverbial wisdom, right? In other words, this is generally true. Not always true, generally true. The Old Testament prophets reflecting on these truths in the Old Testament books of the law and of the wisdom literature, the Old Testament prophets saw caring for the needy as a form of, of doing righteousness and doing justice. So Jeremiah indicts the wealthy for neglecting the poor. In Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 26, we read, For wicked men are found among my people, they lurk like fowlers lying in wait. They set a trap. They catch men. Like a cage full of birds, their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and rich. They have grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper, and they do not defend the rights of the needy. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord, declares I am who I am. A few chapters later, Jeremiah rebukes a king for not being like his father, his father was a king who was generous. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 15. Do you think you are a king because you compete in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well is not this to know me, declares the Lord? Is not this to know me, to do justice to the poor and to the needy? Isn't that amazing? Jeremiah says that knowing God is, is judging the cause of the poor and the needy. To serve the poor is to know the Lord. Now, this is not salvation by works. This is generosity as evidence that you know the Lord. It's not that anyone gets to heaven by judging the cause of the poor and needy. He's simply saying, how can you identify as my people? How can you identify as the people of my possession? How can you identify as the people who love me if you don't care for the poor and the needy in your midst? That's what it means to know me. That's what it means to love me. That's what it means to serve me. And this is a theme in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 6, we often talk about um, fasting. And one of the things that's often said about fasting is, well, we don't see an, ex an explicit command to fast, but Jesus just assumed that, 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 that Christians fast, and, and so we should fast. Well, guess what else Jesus assumed? He assumed that disciples will care for the poor. And he simply urges them when they do it to do it humbly and quietly and not seeking attention. He says in Matthew 6, 2, when you, when, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. There will be a reward there will be ultimately everlasting life for those people transformed by the gospel who in response to the gospel give to the poor and the needy quietly, secretly. In Luke chapter 10, we have the famous parable of the good Samaritan. Jesus taught that loving your neighbor, loving your neighbor often means showing mercy to strangers, showing mercy to, to the last people anyone would think you would naturally show mercy to. So 
when a man is, is robbed and, and left for dead at the side of the road in the parable, a priest passes by and doesn't look. And, and, then, and, then, and then a Levite, a religious man of Israel, passes by again, doesn't look. And finally, a Samaritan. And if you know anything about the Bible, the Samaritans were no friends of the Jews, and the Jews were no friends of the Samaritans. This, if anyone should have passed by, it should have been the Samaritan. But it's the Samaritan who binds his wounds and pays some money to help this man get the care that he needed to live. In James 1.27, we're told that pure and undefiled religion, that's the kind of religion I want. I want pure and undefiled religion, right? Pure and undefiled religion is visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. Right? Pure and undefiled religion is caring for those who, who can't care for themselves. And the preeminent examples of that were orphans, the fatherless, and, and widows who in you know, ancient Greek and Roman society, a, a widow was someone without family to care for her needs, and it just wasn't as simple in that century to, to get a job as it, as, it, as it is today. And so the Bible says, hey, this is, what, this is what godliness looks like. It looks like visiting, looking after, caring for orphans and widows. Now, we can get into a debate about whether or not these orphans and widows are inside the church or outside the church. But before we do, let's remember Galatians chapter 6, verse 10 which says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So a few moments ago, I mentioned uh, our own church covenant. Our own church covenant is an edited version of a, government, uh, of a church covenant that has been uh, circulating around uh, Baptist churches for well, you know, a couple of hundred years right now, if we went back to uh, the uh, earliest Baptist churches in America, every one of them had church covenants. Why they did is a, that's a sermon for another day or a, a comment for another day. But I came across a covenant made by a church in Virginia in 1779. And it says this, it says, we agree and do promise, God assisting to do all the good we possibly can to all men both in a spiritual and temporal sense, but especially to the household of faith, agreeable to Galatians 6.10. So whether it's our own church covenant, which says, you know, we're to, we're, to, we're to care for the poor, other church covenants, you know, not all of them, but many of them make this assessment that to partner together in the Christian life with other believers is to say, by the grace of God, as I have opportunity, I'm going to care for the spiritual and the, the physical needs of those around me. Caring for the needy is not our main mission. You'll never read, as you have opportunity, share the gospel. No, sharing the gospel is our main mission. You are to always be sharing the gospel. But just because caring for the poor isn't our main priority, doesn't mean we should ignore it altogether. Caring for the needy is complicated in an age like ours with so much wealth and prosperity, where the government, it's just, this is not like Savannah 200 years ago, the government now provides so much assistance, where even today the, the poorest often have their most basic needs already met. And furthermore, simply throwing money at the needy isn't always the best solution. For more on this, you can read a great book called When Helping Hurts. Financial giving can be done very badly. So what can you do, though, if, if, if you want to give to the need? If, you are, if your conscience is pricked by an application point like this that says a generous Christian gives to the needy, what can you do if you want to give? I would encourage you to lean into ministries supported by Mount Vernon, ministries which seek to wisely meet physical and spiritual needs. Support the Good Samaritan Health Center right here in Atlanta, led by our own Bill Warren. Get involved with the Sandy Springs Mission and after-school program right here that reaches out to 
the neediest in our community. Many children have gone through this program, received food and tutoring, and yes, have heard the gospel. Mount Vernon has a benevolence fund. It's a benevolence fund that we budget for, but what we budget for is not enough to meet the needs that come to our attention over the course of any given year. It depends upon generous gifts, and it goes to support the needs of members of our own church and occasionally members of our community. If you want to give to the needy, but you need some direction, let me encourage you to reach out to our assistant pastor for missions while he's still here, Jesse Brannan, and our new deacon of local missions, Bill Timmons. Ask them what you can do. There are many other ministries that we are associated with that we would encourage you to be a part of. Meanwhile, pray that God gives Mount Vernon a reputation for being a generous church that cares for the needy. All right, third. A generous church, a generous Christian gives to the body. A generous Christian gives to the body. Now, here I'm talking about the body of Christ. I'm talking about the local church. I'm talking about our family of faith. Again, we get a taste for this in Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. That's the church. That's the body of Christ. That especially matters. We are uniquely called to care for one another, to serve one another, to be generous to one another. Yes, as we have opportunity, we are to care for others, to care for strangers. But as we live and breathe, we are to care for the members of our local church. In Acts chapter 4, shortly after the church is born in Jerusalem, God's people began the wondrous process of caring for one another. Those who had more gave generously to those who had less. We read about this in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. This is the early church. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Do you realize that the first scandal in the, in the early church was when the church members were not properly caring for the needy in the body? Poor Greek widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Maybe, you know, this is the equivalent of a, of a modern-day pastor uh, failing to visit a homebound member in need. A whole host of widows being overlooked, not having their needs provided for in the early church. And this problem led to grumbling and complaining and finger-pointing and disunity in the body of Christ. And so the apostles decided that the church ought to set aside the first set of deacons to do what? To meet the cares of the needy in the congregation. You can look that up later in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now, why does the Holy Spirit draw our attention to the unity and camaraderie of the church? Why is there an entire church office, the office of deacon, that appears to have been created to preserve the unity of the church by providing for the needs of the members of the church? Why is generosity to be on display loudest and clearest in the context of and within a local church? The answer is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 34, where Jesus tells his disciples, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, 
you are to love one another. By this, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. By this, the world will know that you're following me. By this, the world will know that your faith is the real deal. By this, the world will know that you love me more than you love anything else by the love you have for one another. Over the years, many of you have told me how much you appreciate how intentional we are about church membership at Mount Vernon. I want you to know this is why. The better we love one another, the more faithfully we serve one another, the more we express, express generosity towards one another. All this we intend to be a, a demonstration to a watching world of the beauty and the power of the gospel. Church membership is not a program. I know that when you hear that word, that's immediately where your mind goes. This is a program, a way of building up the institutional church. And when the word institution is used in the 21st century, it is not a compliment. But I want you to know that church membership is not a program. Church membership, biblically understood, is a practical demonstration of the love that we have for one another. It's a way of standing up and stepping up and saying, I'm willing to be known and I'm willing to know others for their good. I'm willing to identify with these brothers and sisters in Christ and to say publicly, I've got their back. Church membership is not a, it's not a, it's not a program. It's a public declaration of obedience to John 13, 34, where we declare that if we are following Christ, we are going to be powerfully and practically loving and serving one another. Church membership is a way of identifying who the church is, much the way a, a magnifying glass enlarges something very small so that it seems very big. The church is like a magnifying glass that enlarges the power of the gospel, making it visible to the wider watching world. And this is what we want. This is what we hope for. This is what we, we pray for. And this is what God has used over time to demonstrate his glory. There's an account of a crew member on the Mayflower traveling from England to the colonies, observing to America, observing these Christians on board the ship. And uh, many uh, got sick and many died. But what struck this unbelieving crewman was how the Christians on the ship cared for one another. He said, I now see you show your love like Christians, indeed one to another. But we let one another die like dogs. Well, I'm not saying that every unbeliever is letting others die like dogs. I'm just saying that throughout history, Throughout time, Christians have been known for caring for one another. And that's been a wonderful testimony of the gospel to unbelievers who are living alone and sad, not knowing what it really means or looks like to be loved or to love. May our church body be known for outdoing one another in love and in generosity. When we talk about generosity, there is nothing abstract in that word. It finds hands and feet in the church. In the way we generously give of our money and of our time and of our resources and of our gifts to one another. Right? No one here is an estranged cousin from Omaha. We are all dearly loved brothers and sisters in Christ. If you aren't a church member, let me encourage you to find a church home soon. I know that in a COVID-19 world, that's a little bit harder than normal. There's no perfect church. We certainly aren't a perfect church. But a generous Christian gives to the body, the body of Christ. And membership is a godly, practical, biblical way to practice generosity today. Now, if you are a member but you feel like you are on the outside looking in, if you feel like a cousin from Omaha, like if you're a church member and that's how you feel, I'd love to hear from you. Talk to me. Talk to any elder. Talk to a, another brother or sister in Christ. Share with us 
how you feel, how you're doing, why you don't feel the generosity of the body of Christ around you. I'd love to talk to you about that. All right, first, a generous Christian gives freely. Second, a generous Christian gives to the needy. Third, a generous Christian gives to the body. And fourth and finally, and applied a little, implied a little bit already, fourth, a generous Christian gives more than money. A generous Christian gives more than money. I hope you will walk away from this sermon convinced God cares how you spend your money. He really does want you to be financially generous. But I hope you also see that as we at Mount Vernon aim for a culture of generosity at Mount Vernon, we're aiming at more than faithful financial giving. Generosity encompasses the totality of our lives. And we see this all over the pages of Scripture. In Exodus chapter 18, where Moses is very new to leading God's people, he's so overwhelmed by the task at hand. And his father-in-law Jethro wisely gives Moses an idea. In verse 21, he says to Moses, Look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people. He tells Moses to do a good job of, of raising up others who might share the burden of leadership. Well, I have no doubt that it would have been an honor to serve in that capacity. I have no doubt about that. But make no mistake, these men gave generously of their wisdom to, if you know anything about the people of Israel, they couldn't have been the easiest people to serve. And these men gave generously of their wisdom. That's generosity. In Exodus chapter 36, Moses is giving instructions once again for the sanctuary, and he calls on the craftsmen, the artisans of Israel, to help all those in verse 1, all those, verse 1, in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary. All right? That would not be me. That's like Bernie. John Hall, maybe some of you others, I don't know, not me, right? But these individuals were able to give their skills for the work of the Lord. That's generosity. Think of Esther, the Jewish queen of Persia. When she discovered a conspiracy to kill all of the Jews in the land, she decided to act. And though it could cost her her very life, she approached her husband, the king, and asked him to intervene. Listen to what she said in Esther 4.16. Then I will go to the king. Though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Esther was willing to perish for the good of the people. That's generosity. Timothy. All right, Timothy, many of us know Timothy, not personally, but he's very famous in the Bible. A young man called into Christian ministry uh, by the Lord, through the instrument of Paul. And um, we're so used to, to Timothy being uh, this faithful servant, this great church leader in Ephesus, great man. But you know, you know, his life really wasn't his own. And we're so used to that. When we hear verses like the one I'm about to read, we don't stop and think really much about them at all. Philippians 2.19, Paul writes, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I, too, may be cheered by news of you. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I, too, may be cheered by news of you. What do I know from this verse? I know that Paul wanted to be cheered. I know that Paul cared about the Philippians. He wanted a good report from the Philippians. And I know that Timothy was basically a mailman. Paul didn't say anything about Timothy being encouraged. I mean, what about Timothy's needs? Doesn't he have desires? You know, it's that, what's that old expression? Everyone likes to be called a servant until he's actually treated like one. Paul treated Timothy like a servant, you know? And Timothy willingly gave of himself for the ministry. I'm just pointing out a very practical, that's generosity. I don't think Timothy minded. He's happy to serve Paul that way. Happy to serve the Philippians that way. Now, maybe, maybe you're thinking, Aaron, that's quite a list of people. You know, you got Moses in there, 
You threw in Esther. That was neat. Timothy kind of surprised me there. But Aaron, these are like amazing people. I'm, I'm just a lawyer. I'm just a stay-at-home mom. I'm just a nurse. I'm just a landscaper. I'm, I'm no hero. I'm no martyr. What does any of this have to do with me? I'm so glad you asked. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is the job description of every Christian. It's a call to radical generosity. It's a call to give yourself to the Lord. It's a call to give yourself for the Lord and for His people. That's what I want you to see here. It's, it's not just a call to give yourself to the Lord, but when you give yourself to the Lord, if you're really doing it, you're simultaneously giving of yourself to the Lord's people. And if you don't believe me, just notice how Paul continues in Romans chapter 12. Look at verse 3. He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, everyone among you, everyone, I'm pretty sure that was everybody, like everybody in the congregation, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. It's, it's not just our money that God calls us to give cheerfully. It's our mercy. And I would argue it's everything in that list is to be given cheerfully, gladly, joyfully. So may Mount Vernon be filled with people who are not just cheerful givers financially, but who are cheerful givers spiritually. May we have men and women who pour out their lives for the glory of God and for the good of one another. May we be generous, not merely with our stuff, though that's important, but with ourselves. Imagine for a moment at two adults, and uh, both of these adults are reflecting on their childhood. They're reflecting on their experience with their parents. And one of them says, yeah, I remember growing up, I didn't lack for anything. I had you know, the, the newest clothes. I had the greatest shoes. I had just great vacations. You know, they got me a car. I never lacked for anything except perhaps maybe some time with mom and dad. I wish I had more time with them. You know, they gave me a lot of stuff, but I'm not really sure that they really gave me, looking back, what I really wanted the most was I wanted to know them. And I wanted to know that they cared about me. And then the other person gets up and he says, wow, I, you know, my experience was really different. Uh, I, you know, I didn't have the, the name brand clothes. And um, uh, I knew my way around Goodwill. And uh, vacations really weren't, I mean, camping was great, you know, but we didn't really have the great vacations. We didn't go to destination places. And, um, you know, for eating out, I mean, Panda Express was great, but that was like every other month. It just, you know, I didn't have a lot. But you know what? I, I never lacked conversation with my parents. And I always knew they loved me. And they spent a lot of time with me. Well... When you hear those two stories, I mean, who is more generous? Like, is anyone here going to say, well, actually, I think it was the one who got them the name brand clothes? I mean, we just, we know not to go there. We, we know. Like, the, the non-Christian knows what really matters most is not 
the giving of your stuff, it's the giving of yourself. And so it's much easier for me to sort of set a goal of financial giving for a local church and just say, hey, why don't we set up meetings in my office where you come in, you tell me how much you make, how much you're in debt, um, and then I'll sort of gauge on what I think you should give so that you're honoring the Lord in your financial giving. I'm not saying any of you would do that, but I think even if we did that, that wouldn't be generosity. The kind of generosity that the Bible is calling us to is the kind that I would argue is sort of immeasurable. How do I... And forget the 80-20 rule. How do, we, how do we quantify pouring out your life for others? And I don't want you to think that one sermon can do this. I mean, this is sort of like every sermon, year after year after year, help me know what it means to pour out my life for other people because I don't want to get to the end of my life and find out that really I live for myself. And that's what building a culture of generosity really has to be if it's going to smell of the Bible. So brothers and sisters, I want you to look at your life and I want you to ask yourself the question, how can I be more generous? And maybe money is a part of it, right? Maybe you need to start giving financially or simply giving more faithfully. Maybe sometimes I refer to like you're tipping to the church, like you're tipping. Like, Thank you. But maybe it's not that you're not giving at all, but maybe, you know, you need to not do that, but give more faithfully, more regularly. So I don't want to, you know, I don't want to take anything away from that. Maybe you need to adopt a homebound member. In other words, maybe you need to start writing a note every single week to a homebound member. By the way, we've got a few more homebound members now than we normally have. Maybe you need to start making a call every month. I know I'm preparing right now a list of rules. I'm, I'm trying to be practical, and I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit is going to help you filter this in and filter that out, okay? Maybe you need to find an area of service so that you don't just consume on Sunday mornings, but so that you come and give. Maybe you need to have a new member over for a meal in your home or your backyard. It's a COVID world. You need to model to the world what it looks like to invest in people who might not be like you, people with whom you only share the gospel. Okay. Maybe you need to pursue foster care or adoption. There are lots of kids in need, lots of orphans. You can help. Maybe you need to reach out to Jesse or Bill and find a way to get involved in Good Sam or the Sandy Springs Mission or other mercy ministries. And so you need to make a note. Call Jesse. Call Bill so that you can show very tangibly the love of Christ in our city. Maybe you need to figure out how to move to Fujaira to serve Jesse and Elaine as they consider planting their lives overseas. I'm just saying, maybe. Whatever it looks like, I pray you'd be a generous Christian who gives more than money, who gives of himself or herself joyfully open-handed with what you have for the sake of those you love. I know I've given you a lot to think about. Maybe you're a bit overwhelmed like Moses in the wilderness. Maybe you are really challenged uh, that your life is being lived for yourself and not really for others. And the Holy Spirit is show, showing you the gospel. The Holy Spirit is showing you maybe afresh that because Jesus really is God, because Jesus really did die on a cross in the place of sinners like you and me, because he really conquered death in that resurrection, and because he's really coming back, right, because all of that is true, that if your faith is genuinely in him, if he really is your Lord, if you're really submitting to him with everything you have, trusting in his death and in his life for your forgiveness and your salvation, maybe the Holy Spirit is saying, friend, if this is you, you need to grow in generosity towards others. I'm not preaching this message to put a burden on your back. I'm preaching this sermon because generosity is good for you. And like Paul in Philippians 4.17, I'm calling you to be generous so that you can experience the fruit that increases to your credit. God kindly rewards those who generously pour out their lives for him. 
I can't tell you exactly what kind of fruit that you will bear, but I can guarantee it is better than anything this world has to offer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and we're thankful for the numerous passages in the Bible that either speak directly to or indirectly to the identity of a generous life. And we ask you to help this not go in one ear and out the other, because we all have room to grow. Teach us, show us how we might be more generous to the praise of your glorious grace. Thank you for being our unchangeably generous God. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.